was in college, I took a course on Shakespeare's tragedies and histories. For our first essay assignment, we were told we could write about anything we wanted, so long as we made an argument and supported it with examples from the text. I had no idea what I would write about. I usually came to class an average of 20 minutes late, and I hadn't read any of the plays. I had sat on one evening and tried to read Richard II, but I realized that to even understand one soliloquy would take up my entire night. Still, I had this essay to write. Our professor was an elderly woman, reminiscent of Queen Elizabeth II, who insisted on making a whooshing sound with her throat every time she used a word beginning with the letters WH, as in what, what, where, where, white, white, whale, whale. So asking for advice from her was clearly out of the question. Luckily, she also had a TA working for her, a PhD student from India who was relatively chill. One evening, I followed him outside after class and watched as he lit up his nightly cigarette. I approached him and casually asked him how he had gotten into Shakespeare. I was hoping that I could casually mention that I hadn't read any of the plays we'd been assigned and that he'd give me some guidance on how to proceed with my essay. I started by mentioning that, in general, it was very difficult for me to read Shakespeare, that I usually had no idea what the characters were talking about and required hours just to finish a single scene. I was hoping that maybe he would get the hint. He laughed. Shakespeare shouldn't be difficult, he said. His plays were the Hollywood blockbusters of his era. They were designed to have mass appeal. What? Yeah. Shakespeare wasn't trying to create great works of philosophy with his plays. He wanted them to be, above all else, entertaining and riveting, akin to action-packed flicks, so that folks would pay good money to come see them and sit in the seats. My essay was due in 48 hours. After my TA spoke these words, I decided that I still had time to write the paper and that I didn't need to confess to him. Instead of reading the plays, I went to the film lab and requested a copy of a recorded performance of Henry IV, Part I. I followed along with the lines as I watched the play unfold on the screen. I then watched the film another time, a second time. That was all that I needed. In just under six hours, I had developed a comfortable familiarity with the play, and I was ready to write a paper on it in which I advanced my own interpretation. My professor loved it. I got an A. That, my friends, was a story. But I did not have to tell it. If someone were to ask me, how was that Shakespeare course you took as a sophomore? I could have just said, I generally didn't make it to class on time. I liked watching films of Shakespeare more than reading the plays. Eventually I got an A. That would not be a story. That would simply be a report, a relaying of information. Similarly, if someone were to ask, what are some stereotypical conceptions of Shakespeare? One could have answered, it is commonly thought that Shakespeare wrote highbrow literature intended to be pondered over by philosophers and theologians while drinking tea in a salon. In fact, Shakespeare's plays had mass appeal from the outset. Once more, 
this would not be a story, but just a transmission of information. By offering a story rather than just stating facts, I believe I was able to accomplish far more in the endeavor. A story hooks the minds of the audience members and allows them to paint a mental picture of what transpired. But a story is not just entertaining. Stories always show rather than tell, and showing gives far more vividness and detail than telling ever can. This story concerning me and my Shakespeare teaching assistant was able to move out into realms distant from the immediate subject at hand. By telling a story rather than reciting a logical stream of sentences, the information I passed on far exceeded my general thoughts on taking a Shakespeare course and stereotypes surrounding the bard. This is the expansive power of storytelling. Shit, I break kids, step into my zone, mad rhymes will stifle ya. Lines like rifles go blast when I kick some ass. A lot of rappers be like one-time wonders. Couldn't say a fly rhyme if there was one right under. No you are listening to The Shrift. Life Tip 37, Joshua 2. Nah, you can't compare me. And no, we don't make whack tracks. And all the suckers get pushed back when I'm kicking real facts. I represent, set up shit like a tech boy. You're paranoid because you're a son like Elroy. And you'd be happy as hell to get a record deal. Maybe your soul you'd sell to have massive deals. Oh, yes, I'm greater than all MCs. When I breeze, give me room, please. I be like fascinating when I be updating. Cutting off white kids, pulling their trump cards. I thump on. Storytelling, however, is a lost art. Even as early as 1936, Walter Benjamin lamented the gradual disappearance of storytelling from society. He begins his 1936 essay, The Storyteller, with the following lines. Though his name may be familiar to us, the storyteller, as he once moved about in the past, is now lost to us. The art of storytelling is coming to an end. It is ever more seldom that we meet a person who knows how to tell a story properly. And when we do find ourselves gathered round to hear a story told, everyone seems to somehow feel embarrassed. It is as though that which was once one of our most inalienable of rights, our most assured of securities, has been taken away from us, namely the ability to share our experiences with one another. Stories have been replaced by the unloading of information, by reporting, by the listing of facts. This trend bothers Benjamin immensely. He attributes it to the rise of the newspaper, the press, the media. Ironically, the desire of the news to report with painstaking exactness, to get its message across at all costs, neutralizes and deadens the stories it wishes to tell. Benjamin writes that, quote, Every morning brings us the news of the globe, and yet we are poor in noteworthy stories. This is because no event any longer comes to us without already being shot through with explanation. Actually, it is half the art of storytelling to keep a story free from explanation as one reproduces it. Here, Benjamin gives us one of the great ironies of storytelling. 
When narratives withhold, linger, and hesitate, they express far more than when they obsessively try to get every detail across and shove every last fact into your brain. With stories, less is always more. The decline and fall of storytelling didn't just happen accidentally. It correlates directly with the rise of modernity and postmodernity, with the breakdown of small communities, the turn toward mass media, the proliferating of information, the increasing isolation of individuals, and the dependence on the hourly clock. Benjamin handles all of these social phenomena in his essay. He writes that, quote, if sleep is the apex of physical relaxation, then boredom is the zenith of mental relaxation, unquote. When people are bored, their minds will eagerly devour up new stories. Today, Benjamin explains, we are not bored enough. Our minds are too overloaded with meaningless distractions that we have lost the gift of listening. We have lost the ability to weave and spin the storyteller's words together while we are listening to them. If Benjamin felt this way in 1936, before the internet, the iPhone, Amazon.com, and Instagram, we can only suspect that things have gotten even worse nowadays. Indeed, we can appreciate Benjamin's point to a far greater, and thereby more disturbing, degree than his original audience could have. In Israel, one of the most oft-heard words on the street is tachlis. Tachlis, a Yiddish word meaning get to the point. Israel is one of the fastest-moving societies in the world, with a six-day work week, an army which is always on duty, and a children-to-adult ratio far higher than anyone is comfortable with, except maybe for the children. Our minds have been conditioned to operate this way, certainly in Israel, but indeed all over the world as well. That is, they've been trained to want to jump immediately to the point, to get to the point, to the facts, to the information, to the takeaway. This is why, after all, people read the newspaper in the morning rather than the Odyssey. Who has time for Homer today? What could he possibly tell us? In fact, he can't tell us anything, but he can show us an awful lot more than the news ever could. As much as we may wish to leapfrog past storytelling in the quest for truth and information, we are inevitably drawn back to it. As Benjamin points out, storytelling has been woven deep into our psyches since the dawn of humankind. It was our primary mode of communication for thousands of years. Deep down, our minds still want stories. We just need to get better at telling them and better at listening to them. The Haftarah for the Parsha of Shalach Lecha comes from the book of Joshua. It would have made Shakespeare proud. Like Shakespeare's plays, it seeks to immediately capture the fascination of the audience. It is, in this sense, cinematic, packed with all of the time-tested tricks of good storytelling. It begins as follows. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, telling them to go and scope out the land of Jericho. So they went out and came to the home of a prostitute named Rahav and stayed there for the night. All of this was told to the king of Jericho. Your majesty, Israelite spies have come to infiltrate the country. 
the king of Jericho then ordered the prostitute Rahab to produce the two men. But Rahab had hidden the two men on her roof. In just these handful of verses, the Torah has given us spies, a traitorous prostitute, an angry king, and a secret rooftop hiding place. From this point onward, all of the chess pieces are set for an enthralling story which will captivate crowds. This is the kind of ancient story which Walter Benjamin wished could reemerge in our modern era. The story of Joshua and the spies is designed, above all else, to be listened to, not to transmit information or to decide upon the meaning of life. One can sense in this story that it was likely passed down orally over generations, like the epics of Homer. Whatever philosophy it communicates, it does so through withholding details rather than getting hung up upon them. Whereas news begins to sound old and decayed just a few days after publication, this story from Joshua retains its freshness thousands of years later. Unfortunately, we do not seem to have time for these stories today. We are not bored enough like the ancient listeners of old. Our minds are too brainwashed by the mantra of talkless. But ironically and tragically, each day in which we race to try to get to the point, we squander an opportunity to acquire the real wisdom which only stories can impart. But to acquire this wisdom, we need to be bored enough and patient enough to allow for weaving to occur. The next time somebody asks you a question such as, what kind of food do you like, or what's your favorite podcast, consider answering with a story rather than just giving a logical answer. When a conversation consists of the mere exchange of hyper-rational opinions, try interjecting with a story and notice how the mood changes. When you are not sure how to express your emotion or even your thought, try telling a story to capture the sentiment. To tell a good story, you don't need to have spies or kings or exotic concubines as characters, although it wouldn't hurt. As Aristotle taught us long ago, a story at its core only requires three things, a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's it. If you have those three, usually the rest of the story will write itself. You don't have to be Homer or Shakespeare to tell a good story. As Benjamin pointed out, storytelling is as innately natural to the human experience as is eating or drinking. We all have the right and the ability to share our experiences with each other.